The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody. The sort of survivors of the winter. It's, I've never seen it like this where, you know, the crowd has been diminishing ever since mid-January. I think the combination of the flu and the, and the storm, one storm a, a week or maybe one and a half a week since mid-January, it's been intense. And it's really good to, I mean, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on, you know, in our families, in our hearts, in the wider world. So it isn't just weather, of course. And uh, our real refuge is this loving-kindness practice. And it's not not to conceive of it as being different than awareness practice. The main emphasis in terms of how the Buddha found his own way out of his predicament of being a human being with a mind and a body. But we don't really know what awareness, like how to show up with awareness, unless we've done some exploration about these emotions of love. And I've been talking about this the last few weeks. Um, Loving kindness or that basic goodness, that basic friendliness, metta, that's the basic attitude of love. But when that basic capacity to be kind, to include meets suffering, we call it compassion, right? The kind of heart, kind of attitude, you could say, or emotion that knows how to be in a moment where there's suffering, whether it's your suffering or somebody else's suffering, it doesn't really matter. How to be close, how to actually be interested, how to be unafraid when there's suffering around. And surprisingly, maybe to some of you, For most people, it's even more challenging to be intimate with joy and happiness, our own or somebody else's, when something beautiful is happening. We don't know what to do with that. So we tend to close down or we tend to get exuberant and sort of get lost in our own constructions. And so we call that, as a quality of love, we call it mudita or appreciative joy, sympathetic joy where it's really that beautiful, wholesome quality of the mind that knows how to be intimate with joy, really ordinary joy, watching your cat eat its dinner. You know, so something really simple. But to, to a lot like to know, it's a, a particular mental attitude, wholesome mental attitude that knows how to let that in, let it have, make its impression on the heart. In the same way, we need to learn to allow suffering to touch our heart, to be unafraid. We have to let joy in, too. And for most of us, it's a practice. And then equanimity is the fourth of these four expressions of love, you could say. Brahma-vahara, you might hear in the tradition. Brahma means divine, and vahara means house or abode. So they're called the divine abodes the four beautiful qualities of 
heart, mind, four emotions, the only four emotions you need. These are how we talk about the divine abodes or the Brahma Viharas here. And I mentioned, I've been mentioning, so we're just going to keep digging in to this for a while. And uh, Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager and sort of head of communications, in the weekly email, when, it, when we're announcing these weekly practice groups, there's a link to our webpage on our website that has lots of resources. So there's lots of really good books on the Buddhist teachings on loving kindness, lots of good talks by different teachers, so you get different angles, good articles to read. So you can go there if you want to do some comp- complimentary study these next probably a month or two that will be um, when I'm in town, at least I'll be talking about it. And I think Shelley will be also when she's teaching, and she'll be teaching for me a lot um, when she's in town. Um, we're both traveling and teaching a lot these next couple months. And I gave a homework assignment for those who were around last week. I said, without judging, let's just, you know, and it's hard to remember these things. So it's really okay to, like, make a note, because you know how it is. Life just sweeps us along. And we can have really good intentions in one moment, but unless we act on that intention, like put a note down and carry it in your pocket, we tend to forget our good intention. So what I was suggesting that might be a good exercise, because you can do it this week if you didn't do it last week, is just as you're having moments of awareness throughout the day. So it's not so much during your formal meditation time, but just throughout the day, and there is awareness, because you can't practice when there's not awareness, right? Because the mind's lost in thought. It's unaware. So we can only practice when mindfulness, mindful awareness reemerges. Oh, yeah, it's like this. I have been lost in thought. But now you're not, because now you're aware of having been lost in thought. So you're not lost in thought now. And then in those moments where you, it's kind of like we're drowning in our own mental constructions, and then we come above the surface and we go, oh, yeah, I've been drowning. You know, I've been lost in thought. But in that moment, just to check on the attitude, like is, is the quality of the heart and mind, like you're just checking on the emotional attitude, for example, are one of these four qualities of the heart present? Equanimity, that kind of uh, powerful balance of mind that isn't disturbed when things are confusing or ambiguous, you don't know what the heck's going on, right? That's equanimity. Like, I know how to be intimate even when I don't know what's going on or whether I'm good or bad or I'm in danger or it's safe. But I can, like equanimity, it's that balance of mind that isn't shook by that. Like, oh yeah, I don't know what's going on. And And I'm okay with that. Because sometimes it's like this. I can be intimate with the confusion or the ambiguity. Just like we can be intimate with beauty and goodness and intimate with any of the qualities, right? Suffering, friendliness. Let's see if I can get this to stick. So, so the, the homework was to track, like, when you do come to, oh yeah, it's like this, and then to check the attitude. Is this a moment where general, I mean, it won't be perfect intimacy, perfect love, but just 
generally speaking, the mind seems, the heart seems dominated or established with one quality, one of these qualities of love. And then to get interested in it, not to judge it, not to think, oh God, I'm great, but just to sort of, oh yeah, metta, or you know, loving kindness, basic goodness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, it's like this. Oh yeah, that is in fact a wholesome, beautiful, helpful, functional, emotional state. Right? So it's just, in a way, you're appreciating the skill and the healing of that <clears throat> attitude when it's present. And then if it's not present, then you're noticing like whatever it is, irritation or aversion or fear or impatience or resentment or, you know, could be anything, greed, neediness. So you're noticing that the mind is dominated or dependent on a, not a wholesome, but a constricted emotional state, attitudinal state, right? And again, not to judge it, or even, it's totally understandable that we'd want to fix it, but initially, the better approach is just to, like, let me feel this. Let me really taste or feel what it's like to be bored or irritated or grumpy or resentful or needy or you know, whatever happens to be in that moment. And so you're really getting to know the difference between the disconnection, the constriction of what we might put in the general category of unwholesome attitudes, unwholesome emotional states, and, and get the texture, the quality, the experience of wholesome emotional qualities. And we're just tonight, and probably for weeks talking about them in terms of these four qualities of love that the Buddha really talks about. Metta, karunas, compassion, mudita is appreciative joy, upeka is that equanimity. So, before I go on, anybody do their homework? I mean, did you notice, like, you know, did you catch moments where there was a very natural, spontaneous in the sense that you didn't try to make your attitude wholesome. You just noticed when there was awareness that the attitude is wholesome, is beautiful, functional, like you caught it. You snuck off on yourself. Oh yeah, there it is, kindness. You know, Because that's kind of a little miracle to notice a wholesome mind state. Because when you notice it in this way, you're also noticing that it isn't you. It's like beautiful, it's functional, it's healing, and you're not doing it. It was just, it arose because of causes and conditions. That basic ease and friendliness that you're catching, it's like it was just there. And it, it's actually a powerful little insight that really changes how you begin to relate to your mind and heart over time. You need that insight. We need that insight many, many times. Now, it's more likely <clears throat> because the, it's painful when we're having negative emotions, you know, like irritation or anger. So generally, the mind, in a way, the wisdom in the mind, it has more incentive to like note, like, what's going on? Oh, yeah, the mind's really angry. You know, oh, you know, don't judge it, you know. But 
to really get to know that, to have sort of a friendly, sounds a little funny to say it this way, can we have a friendly relationship when we wake up and there's some awareness, present moment awareness, and we notice their unwholesome, an unwholesome attitude is dominating the mind, can we relate, feel into that unwholesome mind state and uh, what it lays down in the body, what it feels like in the body, can we show up to that in a kind way? Oh yeah, I'm really angry. Or I'm just, you know, I'm bored. I'm really done for the day. I'm fried, you know. Okay. Well, can I be with that? Like, can I show up to that in a kind way? And it doesn't really matter, like, if, if the mind snapped, oh, that's stupid. Well, can I show up to that in a kind way? Like, maybe stop saying, can I show up to that in a kind way? Because that, you know, it's like a parent trying to soothe their 14 or 15-year-old, and it's just making the 14, 15-year-old angry. Right? Well, try something else, you know? Like, don't, oh, sweetie, can you know, and sit next to your child. No, you just put some soup down next to their bedroom door, and I'll kind of say, there's some soup here, and then leave. Right? Like there's different ways to show, demonstrate, because when the, the very definition of these four wholesome qualities of mind is that they're not in need. So when I'm, I have that basic friendliness of metta, compassion, uh, appreciative joy or equanimity, there's no like needing to be noticed needing you to name that my attitude is wholesome or beautiful. But it's real love, whatever four expressions it might be, of the four that it might be. Real love, it's like, it's for, we say it's for its own sake. It's not needing anything back to feel justified. Like it's not real friendliness if you don't notice that I'm being friendly to you or I'm being friendly to myself. It's like a free gift because it feels good to be friendly, to be compassionate, to be appreciative, to be equanimous. It's good in itself, so we don't need anything in return. So you can notice that in the attitude. So I'll I'll just listen for a while, maybe, I mean, unless no one has anything to say, but it would be nice just to take some time now and just to see if you've noticed what you've noticed spontaneously, intimate, Inclusive, like love has this, it's both intimate, it's inclusive, the absence of fear and greed and aversion. So moments like that are moments of a not so wholesome state. Any response? So we got homework to do then. Because it's just, it makes so much sense to be interested in tracking the mind in this way. And like I said, I mean, you can use this some little tricks. Like one is leave yourself a couple notes. And it's actually nice, actually, to have one in, in your pocket. Because then every time you put your hand in your pocket, you feel that piece of paper. Oh, and you go, oh, yeah, that's what I wanted to track the absence or presence of love. You know, and you can, in simple form, you can just say, a mind dominated with some expression of aversion or mind dominated with non-aversion. Like the, the most 
uh, obvious thing about this heart and mind is the relative absence of aversion and fear. Fear is really the same as aversion in the Buddhist psychology. That'd be really, yeah, Mary Laurel, you want to say something? Hi, my name's Mary Laurel, and um, my parents, 85 and 86, just moved to town, and I'm, I'm dealing with helping them to settle in. And um, I've noticed some really wonderful things in some capacity I have, and then I've also brought up a lot of issues with um, me feeling like they're not getting what they need. And so I'll have a realization that I'm not feeling unskillful and unkind in trying to to bring those forward, even though I'm aware of how I'm behaving. And so I'm just wondering how once, when you need to communicate things and you're trying to be kind, and but yet there's some real fact, kind of factual in my mind, um, issues going on, how, how do I continue with the consciousness, even trying to be kind to say the truth sometimes when the truth is, doesn't seem kind? <laughs> Yeah. That's what I'm struggling with a lot of times is I'm so aware of what the truth, it seems like the truth to me anyway, is um, really bringing up some things that could be hard for other people. So I guess that's not with them, I'm saying, but with their caretakers. So, Yeah, yeah. And this is, uh, I mean, the bigger point that Mary Laurel is bringing up is uh, there are many places in our lives where inaction isn't appropriate, where we're, we just are going to be engaged, we need to be engaged. And we'll never, in those places of engagement, uh, we can pretend to have perfect knowledge, like what we should do, but the truth is we never, I mean, I think it's, I don't think that's an exaggeration to say we never have perfect knowledge. We pretend that we do a lot of the time. Sometimes we have more clarity or more intuition, sometimes less, but intuition is just intuition. It isn't certainty. We don't really get certainty. And yet, non-engagement, not choosing, is not helpful, right? And so, and then the reason why we can get tight in those places is here we are making a choice, engaging, taking responsibility, and that engagement might cause people to suffer, often does. A lot of the times, somebody is going to be negatively impacted by our choices. It may still be the right thing to do or seem like the right thing to do. So there's no way to get through life without learning how to be okay with suffering. There's no way to be a good human being, actually, to be a wise and kind human being, to be an awakened human being or whatever, a saintly human being, without being okay with suffering. Because when we, with a really broad uh, brushstroke, you know, we say suffering is bad, then it negates our own experience. Because there's, I mean, it's, suffering is painful. But sometimes suffering has been uh, necessary, unfortunately, but necessary medicine to see what I needed to see to turn my attention towards something. So what I think we can say is the intention to want to cause harm, just by studying that, we'll see that that's not skillful. It doesn't feel good, 
and I'm sure it doesn't feel good. Yeah, I mean, we could ask the other people who we want to harm. Like, how does that feel for you? I'm pretty sure what they're going to say. Right? Like, so the intention to harm, the intention to cause suffering, that, like, is evil, if you want to use the E word, right? But suffering happens. There's a lot of suffering in the world. And if we're telling ourselves, mostly unconsciously, that we should get tight because there's suffering, or that even, more specifically, that my actions lead to suffering, well, how does... Like in Mary Laurel's example, which is so hard, you know, you know, it, it, it's not that different than those of you with young children, those of you with elders in your family that you're, you've got some responsibility for, you're caretaking. What does it do for them if we're getting tight because we don't want them to suffer? I mean, that's a real burden on our loved ones. Like, oh, they're getting tight because they don't want me to suffer. So now I'm going to get tight because they're getting tight because they don't want me to suffer. They're going to see me suffering and they're going to get tighter. And then I'm going to have to get tighter because I've made them tighter. And then they're going to get tighter because I'm even more tight. You see how that goes. And this is like this world. I mean, it's one of the cycles of suffering. And that's a really provocative thing to say. Like, I think we can do this with our good friends. But at least in our hearts, we should be able to, like when we're with a dear one, we should be able to say in our hearts, I'm practicing not being afraid of your suffering. Because that's what compassion is. It's like, I'm going to show up to your life as, you know, given all my other duties and responsibilities in a balanced way, I'm going to really show up. And I'm going to show up even if the way that I'm showing up doesn't alleviate your suffering. I'm going to keep showing up. And I'm not afraid. Like My capacity to show up in a warm way, in a, you know, a nimble, enlivened way, isn't dependent on you getting better or isn't dependent on me having some effective strategy that's going to alleviate your suffering. Because sometimes we don't really have that move, like where we can remove or alleviate someone's suffering. But we can always do one thing, which is basically modeling. And it doesn't mean you ever say this out loud with words, but we can be modeling, I'm not afraid of your suffering. I'm not afraid to be close to you. And that, I think that's really impactful. I'm sure many of you have sat with people when they were dying. And it can, you know, people often when they're dying go through periods of time, at least periods of time, where there's a lot of confusion, a lot of not wanting to die, right? It's not all always a struggle, but there are generally times when it's really a struggle. And it can be very impactful for someone to be there and not afraid of what that is like. Not that we know it directly, of course, but just energetically to be in that space and to have enough presence, enough humility actually like, I don't know if I should freak out or not, so I'm not going to freak out. I'm just going to be here and normalize like that a human being can be here in this experience. It's really good practice.
I was talking to someone, or a couple people recently, you know, who have cats that are just on the edge, you know, lived a long life and not doing well. And we've done that with our cats, um, just letting their, you know, life proceed as it is. And, and then I've been with a lot of dying people over the years. And so I've really learned little by little, you know, that I don't know much, but I think it's better to relax than to be tight and to really trust that. And then, and then you're, you're putting more emphasis on not getting the right solution. You still have to decide, you know, you still have to nav- nav- navigate a lot of details probably. But it might be helpful to put more emphasis on not being afraid of getting it right and just being more interested in just like being at ease in the complexity of it and in the messiness of, and the, you know, just the details of that transition you're in the middle of with your parents, right? More on that and less on getting it right. You know, more on just being present in a, in a beautiful way, okay with the uncertainty. Yeah, so good luck with that. You can report back, you know, in the months, weeks ahead. Anybody else before we go on? Yeah, Jean, please. Hey, why don't you wait for the mic? Because I think we're we recording tonight, Mike. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> um, the description of the homework assignment sounded like a little like um, you would notice that you were mindful that you were present, and then you would notice a um, beautiful quality of mind. Uh, no, just to notice whether. Like in the simplest forms, is you because it might be nice to be able to ask a question that brings the practice alive. Like, is is this mind dominated by aversion, or is the general tone of this mind, mind state, heart state, heart quality now, is the general quality non-aversion or love? And the get intro, whatever it is, no need to judge and no need to even fix it. Like if you notice the aversion. Just to get interest, because the interest, the mindful interest, has the quality of love in it, right? So if we really emphasize, instead of thinking, I'm here, I'm in an angry state, and I need to get over here in a loving place, it's more interesting and useful to get interested in the aversion, the anger, and to notice that's how it gets transformed, like, can I meet this with kindness? Can I meet this with... Because like, that inclusive quality is an expression of love. Like, can I include this? Can I feel this? Am I willing to feel this? Because it seemed to me that, um, you know, a lot of times the hindrances might be present, which, you know, basically aversion in one form or, not, or another. Yeah. But in that first moment, which repeats itself moment by moment, right? It's always fresh. So this is really important with when you catch your mind kind of really entangled because part of the entanglement is the voice that's basically saying, telling a story 
there is an edifice of negativity. There is an edifice of bad attitude going on here. This is not a small thing. I mean, that's part of the story. That when we're in a dark place, you know, a heavy place, that it has like really big roots. But this, and this, you know, this has been learned over, you know, 37 years of practice. But there's really no, so in the next chapter, which is, by that I mean the next moment, there's no distance to kindness. There's only the idea that being free, relating in a wholesome way is like miles away. That's, that only exists as an idea in the mind, which is not much of anything. But when the mind is attached to that idea, I can't practice until this negativity goes away. <coughs> I can't be kind until this aversive state goes away. The attachment to that idea creates a serious roadblock. But it's the attachment. It's not that thought there or the aversion that's there. It's the identification to it. It's the wrong understanding of that state. Because we all know this experience. We have all many, 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 many times have had a negative emotional state and in a moment saw it, but saw it with a balanced mind, which meant there's kindness there. Oh, yeah, it's like this now. Just like we've met other people in negative places in a balanced place. And and in the same way, it transforms like if you're interacting with a few people (coughs) and people are just being, you know, gossiping in a mean way, let's say. But somebody comes in and relates to the gossiping, not in a self-righteous way, but in a kind way like, ooh, you know, this doesn't feel very good to me. You know, uh, can we change the topic? Or can we talk about this in another way? Or, you know, I just thinking about what that person might feel like if they knew we were saying this about them. So it shows up in a kind, from a kind place. It radically transforms that space. In the same way, if we show up to however negative our mind might be, if the wisdom and love shows up, oh yeah, it's like this. It's like that next chapter, that next moment is really transformed. And it's really good just on an information level to start imagining, to start believing or start having the information that things are never as heavy or ossified or like a solid edifice as they appear to be. They definitely appear that way. You know, when we're in a depressive state, or when we're in a really anxious state, or, you know, all the different, each of us, we each have our own kind of hole that we fall into, you know, more regularly than other negative states. Because we have history with it, when we're in it, we tell ourselves a story that kind of connects all the other moments we were in that place. So it really feels like it's somehow definitively me when I'm in that not-so-wholesome state. But the thing to explore now with this information you're getting from the Buddha is, can I relate to this? Now, I'm not trying to get away from this negative state. I'm just trying to relate to it 
with some integrity, some kindness, some interest, some willingness, fearless willingness to feel what it feels like to have this not-so-wholesome mind state operating. And you'll see, and like I said, I think a lot of you probably know this, how quickly things can change. It's really that insight changes how you understand your mind. Like, again, you need that insight many times, not just once. Because one of the basic unexamined ignorances is that whatever state of mind is operating, that's who I am. But we, but we imagine that's who I am in a substantial, not-changing way. But the more we have this insight that I've been talking about, the more we're the less and less we're confused and uh, co- even that concerned when we have a negative mind state because we're not imagining it, it's more substantial than it is. And it's really powerful when we see even the regular visitors, you know, the kind of mind states that I was talking about that we tend to fall in, those holes we tend to fall into. It, it doesn't matter that I fall into that hole a lot because I fall out of it a lot too. But if I always, if all, like that story, like when I'm in the hole, all I'm thinking about is falling into the hole. I totally forget I've had to fall out of that hole as many times as I've fallen into that hole. But do you think about that when you're in your sort of whatever your own personal hole is? We don't think, my God, there's been probably a couple million times I've come out of that state because I definitely remember falling into that state a couple million times. Now, isn't that interesting that we are unaware of leaving that state? Think about those times when things were really dark, really heavy, but we don't remember it ending. That's because, I think partly at least, we're really into the drama, the intensity of self-centered drama, of being bad, life-sucking, you know, these sort of very compelling stories because in a way our mind has gotten less interested in seeing the truth of things and more interested in having a juicy, intense story. And the best way to have a juicy, intense story is to make it self-centered, right? If it's personal, it's immediately juicy, and if it's not personal, it's immediately not that juicy. And this is, the, the, this is what the Buddha set up. It's like, you, honeys, you've got a choice between the intensity, the juiciness of self-centeredness, or the peace of, right? Because the opposite of self-centeredness is unity. We kind of like, as an, ego, as an ego, we like the idea of unity, but it's weird. We like it so we can write home and tell people about it. So we like it for egoic reasons because we, in an egoic sense, want to own it. Like, do you have this experience of unity, you know, of not self or, you know, peace, universal peace or universal love or however you might describe it? But the experience itself is not intense because it doesn't belong to anybody. That's the price we pay for spiritual peace. It doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or a Christian. Anybody who's done practice, mystical, 
awakening practice, regardless of you know, their cultural location, they have this choice. Because right? this is just the territory of being a human being. And the problem is, through culture, who knows what other sort of conditioning forces, we've become addicted to the juiciness of self-centeredness. And it's like, you know how it is, we see they do these experiments with rats and animals, you know, where they, even to the detriment of their own health, you know, they keep doing the same thing because they get a hit. And they'll stop eating. Like I was just reading one recently where uh, I think they, they had some, must have had a, an electrode. I forget the kind of animal they did it with. I mean, it's, I'm not for these kind of experiments. But anyway, it, you might as well take some advantage like to learn from them. So the animal could get a little, a little sort of neurological hit, juicy thing, by doing something. And it would do it obsessively to the point of not eating, and it, the animal could go all the way to death just to get that little, you know, neurological or on a brain level, just a little juicy, a little juiciness. So this is the thing. We've kind of, through the concept that arose through evolution, right, the sophisticated language brain, you know, mental processes that can conceive of being a part. But that's a pretty sophisticated idea to be a part. And, you know, and that idea turned out to be really effective in terms of survival because now that I'm me, I really want to survive. You know? Have you noticed, like, when you watch animals in a life or death situation, that, you know, they, they do the best they can, but they're not frantic. It's kind of interesting. Like, I, unfortunately, with our cat, which we allow outside, you know, and sometimes it catches birds, it wears a bell. But, uh, but I notice, because we'll run, scream at it and run outside, and, and uh, the birds just get really relaxed when they're in the jaw of the cat, right? And then as soon as the cat sort of relaxes or puts them down, then maybe at some point, the chipmunk, the bird, or whatever, will make a... But when it's really caught, it just relaxes. Right? Let, let, let's make nature take its course. It doesn't fret unnecessarily. But if that bird had a strong sense of self, it might be really lamenting there in the cat's jaw, you know, creating a lot of psychological tension because it's me in the cat's jaw. And this is definitely not where I want to be. So we've got this intensity, this juiciness of self-centered. And love, like when I mentioned before that generous quality of these four qualities of love, that sort of expansive for their own sake, not expecting anything back, right? You see how love and the wisdom of seeing everything as a natural process, not personal. They're really different sides of the same coin. Because it's really one of the characteristics of understanding these emotional qualities of love is seeing how they correct view, from self-centered view 
to the absence of self-centered view. You don't, you don't even want to call this not-self. It, it gets confusing when you make not-self a view. It's really not having self-centered view. That's why, like with love, it's really the love, I guess it was over here, Love is the absence of aversion, which is over here. Right? Instead of thinking of love as something, it can be actually, as you're ex- experimenting with your own heart and mind, oh, there's no aversion operating. There's no fear operating. There's the absence of the disturbance of aversion. That's what I'm noticing in my heart right now. That's why in Buddhism we have that word empty. It's a very functional term. It's not philosophical. It's really like, oh, look at my heart, my mind, my body. It seems like it's relatively absent, empty of aversion and fear. That's what I see here, that there's not much aversion operating, or maybe in moments doesn't seem to be any aversion, any fear operating right now, and it's like this. Because that that's like from a wisdom point of view, that experience of unity or the mind, how the mind is perceiving or how the mind is knowing, the mind isn't bothering to fragment the experience into dualistic <coughs> ways of framing, like good and bad, mine and yours. Right? It's just the way it is. It's just stuff coming and going. It's just the conditional unfolding of all these causes and conditions. Being known. Just this being known. And, and so, the, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, the difference or the space between wrong view and aversion and wisdom, right view and non-aversion, right? Because it isn't about the moment, so it doesn't require like a different moment, a different experience. It's really how the mind is relating to the present moment, whatever the experience is. With wrong view, taking things personally, person, like projecting that this is a personal thing, belong, this experience belongs to me, is me, or something like that. But it has a, it's eye-making and mind-making is happening. And not inclusion, which is over here, but separation, right? But that's all about how the mind is relating, not... Because we can think of even really bad moments in terms of what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm feeling, what I'm touching, what I'm thinking, right? But what's relevant isn't the actual conditions, but what is the mind doing with those conditions, those circumstances? And that's, that's a real empowerment. And the way the Buddha talked about this, and this simile I think goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha, is about getting upset about stubbing our toes and stepping on sharp objects and deciding, I'm going to carpet the whole world, and then it won't be a problem. Right? And that's our general approach to living and the problems that arise. It's like from a self centered point of view, the only thing we can imagine is fixing and controlling and 
once and for all getting everything perfect, which of course never happens, ever, never can happen. Or we can develop a skill, you know, make a pair of shoes. So wherever we walk, the sharp objects aren't going to be a problem. And that tool is understanding. The Buddha's path is a path of understanding and love. Love is a particular description of that understanding, right? Love is that capacity. Like, yeah, I can include this moment. I can be close to this moment. Whatever it is. Suffering, yeah, I can be close to suffering. Beauty, yeah, I can be close to beauty. It's confusing. I can be close to confusion. I can be friendly. I can be undefended. Because I know how to see the moment without being dependent on wrong view. Like, can't we do that right now? Like, just It's almost like we're just relaxing back in the way it is. Oh, yeah, seeing is like this. Hearing is like this. Feeling the body is like this. Do our minds need a mental construction that defines that interprets this in terms of me or mine? Can it just leave the whatever we're sensitive to, just leave it be what it is? So we get a flavor of this unity, this natural love and natural wisdom. Sometimes people call this, teachers refer to this as unconstructed. And over here is constructed being confused by the mind's constructions. Here, not that there's no constructions, there's no mental activity, but the mind isn't confused by mental constructions. It's, it's sort of orienting or taking refuge in what is unconstructed. That means I'm not even operating with the construction. I shouldn't be dealing with constructions, right? So it's like, Just let constructions be what they are, the mental activity, the stories you're telling yourself. Just realize it's just that. They're just stories that the mind is in the habit of telling itself. Some are skillful, some are unskillful, and we don't actually need to be that concerned. What is more of concern is how is the mind relating to those with identification or just knowing that those thoughts, those stories are what they are, you know, thoughts and stories. So maybe I'll leave it here so we have a few minutes before we end tonight at 8.30 just to see, again, as I've been saying these last few weeks, we've all had a mind and heart for a long time now, and so we've learned a thing or two. And you might have a question that comes out of your experience or comments of what you've been learning, challenges you're running into in your life that you'd like to share with the group. We learn a lot from hearing from each other. So maybe time for three, two or three people to share. Anybody like to begin? Yeah, who has the mic? Thanks, Jane. Uh, Dave had his hand up. Yeah, just uh, something that came up after uh, Friday night's talk that Ruth King gave. I stopped and got gas and went into the store and and, uh, went up to the counter and there's a young black man there and I felt a tightening right away and it's like and then I, I probably the results of that talk and her just her open 
acceptance and love. It just kind of, something kicked in and we just had a nice exchange and we were both laughing, you know, just was for a couple minutes or so. And it was just, you know, that's not my typical response. I mean, I, I felt that defensiveness and that fear from conditioning start to come in. And it was just a nice moment that I could catch that and, and, and respond much more appropriately in that moment. And, and it just was, it was a sweet moment as a result of that. Yeah, and thanks, because it takes some courage just to name these things. But I think it's really important that we get comfortable naming, because this conditioning is real, but it's not personal. And in our culture, we're conditioned, you know, around body size and issues of class, certainly issues of race, gender, sex, and that condition will show up. And the only question is, does wisdom see it or not? Because when wisdom sees it, like Dave said, and Dave, you know, he mentioned, I don't know if people caught it, but there was a really powerful talk that Common Ground sponsored with Ruth King. She also taught this morning. Um, And we'll have the video on our homepage. I really recommend it. She's an outstanding, she's a Dharma teacher, but for years she's done a lot of corporate training around diversity. She's really brought her Dharma, deep Dharma practice together with just knowing how the mind works and having done so much coaching and training over the decade. She's a 71-year-old woman now, African-American woman. And, uh, yeah, so I recommend it. But because of the much more, the wisdom got activated in that great talk on Friday night, you know, when that normal, unavoidable conditioning got activated, wisdom saw that. It's not about it not being there. It's about seeing it and relating to it without fear. Oh, yeah, that's how it is. That's how it is. And because it's seen with wisdom, that means you're seeing it not as me. I'm afraid of people with darker skin. But no, there's just that's just conditioning. How could it be otherwise? I mean... We're not that different in age, Dave and I. And, you know, we grew up watching the TV we watched and being conditioned by the culture, you know, and that was a racist culture, is and was a racist culture. And that's not, it's just the way it is, you know. This is not, hopefully not shocking to people. And it's really like, it's liberating to name that. Oh, yeah. So, of course, that lives on it. We're... We are the continuation of our culture, just like you know our parents were the continuation of. And so this trauma and this ignorance and these sort of simplistic, you know, ideas around difference, they're there. The only question is, are we going to be aware of it? Because if we're not aware of it, you can bet, you know, like Dave suggested, he would have had a different experience there. You know, a little anxious wanting to, to end, wanting to get on. But when it's seen, and seen and without judgment, but just seen, then it creates the space for a different kind of interaction to happen. Because wisdom, when, when it's seen, it deactivates it. These unskillful conditioned patterns only have life in unconsciousness, in unawareness. right? Because awareness knows it's just that. It's not me, it's not personal, but I'm responsible for not being confused by it. 
being aware of it, knowing what it feels like, knowing that, oh, of course it's here. If it's here, there were causes and conditions for it to be here. Thanks so much, Dave, for that wonderful, powerful sharing. Time for one more. Yeah, Misty, all the way across. Yeah, I can do it. Okay. Um, so I did remember the homework. <laughs> I didn't remember why I was doing it, though, until you brought it up today. Um, there were several moments that I did catch um, happiness. And as I understood it, the directions were uh, to look at what was not there. <laughs> At least this is what I was doing this week. And what I noticed was not there when I was happy was tension. Um, but there there has certainly been lots of tension this week. I recently have stopped smoking tobacco again. So it's a physical tension. So I'm not sure where the non-tension is because it wasn't in my body. Yeah. Yeah, because... Morris and I were talking about this earlier about like just that simple understanding of gripping and release as kind of the basic point of the Buddhist teachings. But it, but it is slightly more complex because you'll find, and I think maybe this may be what you're pointing to, is that, again, this goes back to how we're relating, because we bump into places where there's chronic holding, tension. You know, so like, that pattern of smoking <clears throat> might have been a convenient way to mask a more subtle but pervasive tension, anxiety or something. This is often why we eat or smoke or watch or you know look at our phones too much or you know all these kind of patterns that different for different folks, of course. But and so then when we drop the masking behavior, there it is, and then we look at it, and we might like. Because there may be two things happening. You might, you might have moments, sustained moments, where you're not getting tight about that tightness. So it seems a little paradoxical. And that's the thing. is like we're just responsible for relating in a wise way. And we can always sort of back up. Like if we're tight and we realize, oh, I'm relating in a tight way, well, let me accept that. Let me not be tight about being tight. I know it's funny to say it that way, but it's really important because otherwise the practice is a kind of perfectionist trip. I'm not free until all the tension's gone, as opposed to how can I be free with this tension? What does that look like, feel like? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's 8.30. Let's just take a moment, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath together. Maybe pass the mic over to Jean, or Jean will come get it. And just enjoy a few seconds of silence. Trusting the silence. Thanks, everyone. It's really nice to be in community. Appreciate people coming out in the cold. And Jean has a few announcements for us.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.